Amen. Good morning, Journey. So uh, last weekend, Danielle and I hung out for about 24 hours just south of Washington, D.C. We had a friend who planted a church about eight years ago, um, and they just opened their facility, and we were invited out for their grand opening celebration. Uh, and as a former history major, those of you who know my story a little bit, I went to school because I wanted to be a history and a government teacher. Washington, D.C. is one of my favorite places on planet Earth because of all the monuments. And while we didn't have time um, to run around, we flew into Reagan National, which is right on the Potomac, um, flying in and just driving from where we were to Fredericksburg. Um, you could very clearly see the Washington Monument, and we drove by the Jefferson Memorial. You could see the Capitol down in the background. Uh, you could see the flag flying on top of the White House. I love Washington because I love the monuments, and I love what the monuments stand for. And as we get into the life of David today, we're 10 weeks now into a study on the life of David, we come today to David's monument moment. Like if, if, if David had a monument like the Washington Memorial or the Lincoln Memorial or the Jefferson Memorial, if, if, uh, if David had a monument like the St. Louis Arch, today would be the moment where that happened in history. So if you have your Bible, I want you to go to 2 Samuel chapter 24. If you didn't bring a Bible, you, you don't have a Bible, but you want one, our ushers are going to have them. They're going to walk down the aisle, just wave at the ushers, and they can give you one. We're going to read an entire chapter of Scripture. I want to encourage you every Sunday, bring your Bible or have a Bible on your phone or tablet. Every Sunday, we're going to open God's Word. We're going to read it. We're going to study it. It's the reason we come together to understand from God's Word what He's saying. We've given away more than 700 Bibles like this since our church began a little less than three years ago. So if you just took a Bible today so that you can have it to follow along, but you don't have one at home or you don't know where yours is, just write your name in this one and keep it. It's yours. It's our gift to you. And I'd encourage you to just pick up where we leave off today and just keep reading. Read about the stories of God throughout the history of the world. But in 2 Samuel chapter 24 we read about David's monument moment. And if you haven't already turned in your bulletin and kind of perforated and tore off that back page so you could take notes today, I want you to do that so you can follow along. But today we read about David's monument moment. I want to read through 2 Samuel chapter 24 with you. We'll stop a couple times to, to put some things in context. And then I want to teach you spiritually what your monument moment looks like. Because here's what I believe for everyone in this room. I believe for everyone in this room that your best spiritual days are ahead. And I don't know where you've come from or what you've been through. And I'm not sure really where you're headed. But I believe every one of us in the room have the opportunity to have our best spiritual days lie ahead. And I believe everyone in the room has the ability to leave some sort of spiritual legacy that for the rest of our lives and maybe the generation that outlives us, when they think about our lives, they can think about those moments or those things or those places where they're just sure that God moved at that time. Today is one of those moments in the life of David where the world forever looks back and says, God did something right there in 2 Samuel 24. I'm actually going to prove that to you by the end of the message that more than one out of two people on planet Earth 55% of the more than 7 billion people alive today. Look at what we're looking at in 2 Samuel chapter 24. Some agree with it, some don't agree with it. All of them, though, say God did something there. So I want to show you what God did in 2 Samuel 24. We're going to start in verse 2, and then we're going to back up to verse 1 in just a minute. So here's what verse 2 says. So the king, that's David, said to Joab, that was the head of his army, and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel... From Dan to Beersheba. Dan was the northernmost city in Israel. Beersheba was the southernmost city. So he's saying throughout the whole country. And enroll the fighting men. 
so that I might know how many there are. He wanted to take a census. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over. And may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? Verse 4. The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. Now let's stop right here. Because when the nation of Israel asked for a king a little close to a hundred years earlier in the life of Samuel, who was a prophet and a priest um, and one of the judges, God told Samuel, the people can have a king, but here's eventually what's going to happen. Eventually, the king of Israel is going to think that everything that happened in Israel is because of him. And eventually, the king of Israel, like he's going to put people in Israel in servitude. He's going to make them work for him. He's going to make them work for his family. And there's going to be a time in Israel where it really becomes all about the king and it becomes all about Israel and it's not as much about the God of Israel anymore. And he told Samuel, don't let that happen. As a matter of fact, in Judges chapter 6, we see God empower a judge named Gideon to go and fight a major battle. But Gideon's army, he had 32,000 men and God said, your army's too big or else you may think this is about you. So he said, tell everyone who's afraid that they can go home. So that day, 22,000 of the 32,000 went home. Gideon now only had 10,000 to go to war with and God said, that's still too many because there's this thing in human nature that wants to take credit for what God is doing. And he basically told Gideon, you have too many people and with this many people, you might, you might be willing to take credit for what God is doing. So there was kind of this rule, written and unwritten, that you never took a census of the fighting men in Israel. Because when you began to basically count what you had done instead of what God had done, your spiritual journey was already almost over because of the pride involved. And what we see at this time in Israel is Israel had already entered into a time of kind of semi-civil war. David's family was in shambles. His kids were entitled and they treated the, the people of Israel like garbage. He had a little friction and faction within his own household. Pastor Scott preached earlier this summer about one of his sons who tried to take the throne and was killed. A, another few of his sons we would see would later jockey for the throne. The people of Israel, the, the tribe of Judah where David was from, kind of said David's our king. So the other 11 kind of city-states of the other tribes of Israel said, you can have David, we'll do our own thing. So like Israel was kind of a, a prideful mess. They got to a point of peace, they got to a point of prosperity, and everyone was kind of saying, yeah, that happened because of us. David was saying, yeah, that happened kind of because of me, like I killed that guy Goliath, and like I've been a, I've been a pretty good king up to this point. And David's sons were actually saying, no, that kind of happened because of us. And like, you know, dad's kind of an old man now, so, so it's our turn. And the people of Israel were saying, really, it wasn't David at all. It was like us. We, we fought the battles. We've been building the cities. So God looked down at Israel, and he was disgusted with them. So we see an interesting verse in verse 1 that kind of precipitates this, where, where we see that God says, I'm going to give you over to your own pride for a little bit, but it's going to cost you. Look at verse 1. It says, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. I've just told you why. So he incited David. He basically allowed David's pride within him to say, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So in the midst of this prideful nation that was trying to figure out if it could exist outside of God's blessings, God's hope, God's power, God says, I'm gonna, David, I'm just going to turn you over to your pride. I'm going to let you do your own thing. So this was David's idea. Let's take a census and see what happens. We go to verse 8, and they've now come back. It's been nine months They've gone and they've counted all the fighting men. The commander said, please don't do this. Like, it doesn't matter how many people we have fighting for us. We have God fighting for us. Like, if we had no army but we had God, we'd still be okay. 
don't think it's the army's power. And David said, I want to know how many people are in my army. I, I want to be remembered for this as this great general. So it says in verse 8, after they'd gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab reported the number of fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword. In Judah, 500,000. So you already see the divide there. Eleven of the states are calling themselves Israel. David's clan's calling him Judah. They're all trying to figure out who's in charge. In verse 10, it said that David's was conscience-stricken, though, after he counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've, I've done a foolish thing. I shouldn't have done that. You told me not to do that, and God, now that I've done it, I feel bad about it. Verse 11, before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord came to Gad, the prophet, David's seer, basically one of his pastors. They said, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. You choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, shall there come on you three years of famine in your land? Or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you. Or three days of plague in your land. Now then think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. And David said to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. But don't let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel. From that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 people from Dan to Beersheba died. Now, when the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster, and he said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I've sinned. I, the shepherd, I, I've done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done wrong? Let your hand fall on me and my family. Verse 18, on that day, Gad went up to David, and he said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aruna looked and saw the king and his officials coming towards him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people might be stopped. And Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering. Here are the threshing sledges and the, and the oak and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna, gives all to the king. Aruna also said to him, may the lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for him. David built an altar to the Lord there. He sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Now within this devastating chapter in the history of Israel, we see David's monument moment that planet earth will remember him by forever and ever and ever. But I want to teach you about the DNA of that monument moment. Because for us to get to where David ended up in 2 Samuel chapter 24, there has to be some spiritual realities that come alive in our heart and in our mind and in our life. So what happened to allow David to experience this monument moment? Well, monument moments spiritually. Our spiritual journey to what God wants to do in us, it, it, number one, many times it starts with sorrow. Many times it starts with sorrow. And in verses 10 and 17, we see tremendous sorrow. Like David's heart, the shaping of David's heart begins with conviction 
begins with a heavy heart about what's happening. Look at verse 10. David was conscious stricken after he counted the fighting men and he said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly. I've done wrong. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away my guilt. I've done a stupid thing. In verse 17, when David saw what was happening, the angel striking other people, he said, Lord, I I have sinned. I, the shepherd, I've done wrong, but these are sheep. What what have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. We see David's spirit in 2 Samuel 24 is shaped by the sorrow of what is going on in his life. And here's what we need to understand spiritually. Sorrow that drives you to God is good sorrow. Now, that doesn't mean the sorrow is good. Some of you have endured or are enduring sorrow right now that you didn't choose, that you didn't cause. It's not a consequence of anything that you have done. The sorrow isn't necessarily good. But if the sorrow, for whatever reason you're experiencing sorrow, whether it be death or tragedy or divorce or a financial collapse or a job move, whatever it is, the things that weigh heavy on your heart and heavy in your life, If you allow them to push you towards God instead of away from God, they have the ability spiritually to be really good in your life. David said it this way in Psalm 61 too. David said, God, from the ends of the earth I call to you, I call as my heart grows faint. Like when my heart is heavy, God, I call to you. And he says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. God, in situations where I am overwhelmed... I may not like the overwhelming situation, but I like the result of being overwhelmed. I always say, God, help me. God, lead me to the rock that's higher than when I am overwhelmed with anything in life. But particularly here in 2 Samuel 24, when David is overwhelmed with sorrow, that pushes him closer to God. The Apostle Paul said it this way when talking about sorrow leading you towards God. In 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11, the Apostle Paul says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, and it leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you prove yourselves to be innocent in this matter. The Apostle Paul uses two words here, for sorrow and the result of sorrow. He said sorrow, godly sorrow can cause you to repent. The word repent, it's, a, it's kind of a spiritual word. The, the word repent means change your life. And when sorrow or being overwhelmed leads you to make changes in your life that lead you closer to God, that's a good thing. And many of us, our spiritual journey, our monument moment begins with something in our life that is overwhelming us, directing our attention towards God. Or David said, you can look at your life. The apostle Paul did, and he said, you can regret what has happened. Regret means you feel really bad. And there's a lot of us in here that we, maybe we regret decisions that, that we've made. Maybe we've regret choices that we've made. Maybe we regret some of our actions from the past. But the difference between regret and repent is the difference between feeling something and doing something. See, sorrow that just makes you feel bad is kind of worthless in this lifetime. But sorrow that leads you closer to God should be embraced because it's going to lead you to a God-sized moment. Sorrow caused David to act. And when David's sorrow pushed him towards God, here's what we see. The second part of David's monument moment is he was given a crucial second chance. 
David, the leader of Israel, David as a follower of God, was given a crucial second chance to repair what he had messed up in his life. Look at verses 18 and 19. After David in verse 10 said, God, I'm sorry. After David in verse 17 said, God, I'm sorry. In verse 18 it says, On that day Gad went up to David and he said, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded. You know, we looked at David last week, just last week, and we see that David in his life cycle has now gone from being afraid of God to being willing to approach God for a second chance. And I can't tell you what a big deal this is in personal theology. Remember, theology means an understanding of God. Literally, the starting blocks... If you can picture a race being run in the starting line of a race, the starting blocks of our spiritual posture begin with this understanding that we don't have to be afraid of God after failure, but we can approach God for a second chance after failure. Literally, none of us can begin the greatest lap of our spiritual journey until we understand you have a crucial second chance. Because we're all going to blow our first one. And we're probably going to blow our second one. And if you're like me, you're probably going to blow the 50th one and the 100th one and the 1,000th one. The, the beginning stages of your greatest spiritual journey come with this understanding that there's always a crucial second chance. This is the starting block you've got to get comfortable in. Regardless of what you've come through, regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you've caused, you have to feel comfortable settling back in to the starting blocks of the spiritual journey and being willing to start again. You know, probably my, one of my favorite characters in the Bible is, is the grandson of Abraham. His name was Jacob. And Jacob understood this reality of a second chance. Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. Isaac had a son. His name was Jacob. Jacob would later have 12 sons who were later called the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob's name in the middle of his life was was changed to Israel. So he didn't go by the name Jacob. He went by the tribe Israel. So Israel started as a man who was a dad, who was a granddad. He grew into a nation. But Jacob's story is one of second chances. Because Jacob as a teenager, in Genesis 28, Jacob had a God moment as a teenager. We, for those of you who've grown up in church, they call it Jacob's ladder. He, he was running from his brother who wanted to kill him because Jacob was not a, a great guy. Jacob was conniving. Jacob was devious. Jacob was a liar. Jacob was a thief. And in running from his brother who wanted to kill him and his dad who was probably thinking about it, he spent a night alone about six miles north of Jerusalem in the open night. And that night God spoke to him. He had a God moment. And that God moment forever changed his life. And he called the name of the place where he was Bethel, which means house of God. Jacob had a moment in his past where like God spoke to him, God appeared to him. And for about seven years... And by the way, I don't know if you understand the numbers of the Bible, but numbers in the Bible have specific spiritual significance. The number seven, do you know what the number seven means? Some people say perfection. It really means completion. The number seven means completion. It's, it's a work that started, is finished. So seven years after Jacob has this moment, his life kind of goes haywire. He marries someone he doesn't really love, and he, and he steps into a loveless marriage. He's working for a guy that he can't stand. Um, he realizes that probably seven years in, the only way to get what he wants is to kind of go back to being the conniving, deceitful, lying, selfish person. And seven years after this moment with God, he drifts. And he drifts, we know biblically, for at least 18 years. And 18 years later, 25 years, 25 to 28 years after the original moment, Jacob finds himself at this exact same place in Bethel again. 
And as he goes to sleep, he realizes, my goodness, how far I've drifted from my God moment here. And after 18 years of running from God, he tells his family, we're going to do this God's way again. And he, and he recommits his life. He reconnects his life. Now, Journey, in the last three years, we've had 558 people who have made spiritual decisions for Jesus, raising their hands, walking an aisle, checking a card, in small groups at youth camps at Vacation Bible School. 200 of those have been recommitments, rededications, which means it was somebody like Jacob, it was somebody like David saying, I used to be close to God, and then for, for some reason I got away. I got out of church. I got out of reading my Bible. I got out of the personal connection with God for a year. Some of you, for David, it was for, like, like Jacob, it was for a generation. It's been 20 years. And, and, and we don't even describe you as somebody who's spiritually lost because the fact is you're not spiritually lost. You know exactly where Jesus is. He's right where you left him. He's at the youth camp where you used to connect with him every summer, but you'd never bring him home. He's tied up in the damage of your first marriage that you've never been able to pull the rubble off of and pull yourself close to Jesus again. He's buried with a relative or friend who's gone on before you to eternity and you've not been able to embrace Jesus since. You know exactly where Jesus is. He is where you left him. And David looks at his second chance and he says, God, I'm going to embrace it. God, I failed before. I failed a hundred times I failed, we just sang. But your mercy remains. There's this crucial second chance in life. Some of you here don't need to find Jesus for the first time. You need to go get him where you left him. And you need to get in again. You know, I grew up in the age where video games were just beginning to come out. And my favorite button on any video game in the history of planet Earth was the reset button on the original Nintendo that I could play. Because I would, you know, whether I'm playing Mike Tyson's Punch-Out or whether I was Bo Jackson with the Oakland Raiders on Super Tecmo Bowl, if I was losing a fight, if I was losing a game, if the conclusion what wasn't what I wanted it to be, I had the ability to just press reset and start over. This crucial second chance today, August 17th, 2014, is God flashing a spiritual reset button at you and saying, let's try again. Let's try again. But God, what about the last 18 years? God's saying, we'll figure that out. Let's, let's try again. Some of you need to reset spiritually today and take advantage of this great second chance, your monument moment relies on you turning your sorrow to God. Your monument moment relies on you taking advantage of your second chance, but your monument moment, and as a church, our monument moment, number three, it demands sacrifice. It demands sacrifice. Look at verses 24 and 25 and look at them with a pen in your hand because I need you to underline or highlight or circle one of these verses. And as we walk up to verse 24, basically, here's what has happened. Just a, a quick just narrative of the story. In three days, 70,000 people have died. And now we know just from the geography of Jerusalem, this death angel, however he was seen, if it was a cloud, I don't know what was happening, but he's moving north to south over Israel. And he's north of Jerusalem and he's getting ready to wipe out the most populated center where more people in Israel, 10 to 1, live than any place else. The Israel's coming north to south, floating over Israel, and he's floating over Jerusalem and he stops. And David has said, I'm sorry. And the, the prophet has come to David and he said, God accepts your apology. Go build an altar there to, to basically mark this moment in your life. So David goes up and he knocks on this guy's door and he's like, hey, did you see like the cloud over your head um, or the tornado or what, you know, the, the angel? I don't know what it looked like, but Arun is like, man, like you going to deal with this or am I going to? Like they both saw it. And David said, I need to make an altar here. 
And Aruna does for him what every one of us would like to do spiritually. He looks at David and he said, have your God moment on me. It'll cost you nothing. You can have my, you can have my barn. You can have my animals. You can have my wood to build the fire. Like, have your God moment And you don't have to put anything into it. And a lot of us say, that's the kind of God moment I want. I want to have a God moment that I don't have to put anything into. I want to have a God moment that cost me nothing. And David was handed this God moment. Here, have your God moment. You don't don't have to invest anything. And look at what David says. The king replied to Arun, and no, I insist on paying you for it. Because I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. You need to underline that. You need to underline that phrase. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I will not give God a life that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen. And he paid 50 shekels of silver for him. And he built an altar to the Lord there. And he sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. You know, our monument moment, our spiritual legacy will demand sacrifice in our lives. And it will demand sacrifice as a church. Webster's Dictionary defines sacrifice as the destruction or the surrender of something for the sake of something else. I think sometimes we misunderstand sacrifice. It's the act of giving up something that you want to keep, especially in order to get or to do something else. So sacrifice is a trait. Sacrifice is not saying you can have all of this and I get nothing else. Sacrifice is there's something that I want and I'm willing to give this. Sacrifice is a barter. Spiritual sacrifice is giving up something you love for something you love more. That's what sacrifice is. Sacrifice is giving up something you love in order to get something that you love more. And if you don't love something and you have to give it up, by definition, that's not sacrifice. Can you imagine your mom coming to you and say, listen, listen, I need you to skip eating your Brussels sprouts tonight and go straight to dessert. Would you be willing to make that sacrifice? That's not a sacrifice. Would you be willing if your boss said, listen, I, I, need, um, I need you to make a sacrifice for us? You say, okay. Um, I need you. We've got a client in Maui, and I need you to spend a week. We're going to fly you first class over there. We'll pay for everything. We'll give you meal money. We'll give you a nice per diem. But I need you to go to Maui for a week. Um, and for 30 minutes of that week, I just need you to have your favorite coffee at Starbucks with this person. Would you be willing to do that? That's not sacrifice. Can you imagine somebody saying, listen, I need you to take an all-expenses-paid trip to the Rocky Mountains in January where the snow is nice and powdery and fluffy, and we're going to rent you a whole cabin if you just be willing. to." That's not sacrifice. Sacrifice is giving up something you love for something you love more. Sacrifice is laying aside some comfort that you enjoy for something you desire deeply to experience. Sacrifice is trading enjoyment for the potential of experience. You know, I'll never forget in 1995, I had the biggest God moment of my life at a Fellowship of Christian Athletes camp right before I started my senior year of high school. And up to that point of my life, I had, I had lived the comfort of my Christian life, being a Christian kid, going to a public high school, um, living my faith really by not doing 
things that were wrong for Christians to do and going to church, but I'd never invited anyone to church. I never told anybody about Jesus. I, like when I prayed over my lunch, I would always pray as I was looking into my lunch because I was embarrassed. I'd like, I'd open my bag every time. I'd be like, what does mom have in here? And I'd look inside and say, bless the food, amen. I'm like, yeah, she got a sandwich again. You know, like I, like I didn't want anyone to know that I had this bold faith. And in 1995, God ca- called me to lay aside the comfort of living my faith in private to to possibly experience seeing some of my friends become Christians. And I experienced one of the greatest movements of God in my life in 1995 when I, when I finally came out of my shell and I began to talk to people about Jesus and invite them to church and, and I began to show them who I was spiritually. It was unbelievable, but I had to sacrifice the comfort for the experience. I'll never forget in, in, the, in January, February of 2002, I don't know how many of you remember the ice storm of 2002 in Kansas City when like the city just shut down for a week. Um, But during that time in 2002, which just happens to be seven years after 1995, so I I don't know if God had completed the first work that he'd done in me, but in 2002, seven years later, uh, uh, God's ready for a new work and I'm speaking at a retreat in the mountains of Virginia and we flew out right as the ice was coming and our flights were delayed because of the ice around the Midwest. And when we walked in, they'd already started the service. I was speaking for a middle school ministry that had about 300 middle school students in it. They were radically spiritually mature. And they were in the basement of the conference center I was speaking at. And I'll never forget Danielle and I. I was carrying Christian in a baby carrier. He was like six months old at the time. Rounding the steps. And I saw these 300 middle schoolers. And they were worshiping unlike anyone that I'd ever seen worship. And they were raising their hands. They were closing their eyes. Like they were experiencing something spiritually that I had never experienced. And it was way out of my comfort zone. Like I was raised in a church that like the people who raised their hands, like they were crazy. Like your mom would say like, you know, like don't go around that. But you know, like you weren't allowed to use the bathroom at the same time as those people. You just, you just never knew. You know, it's like, what is that lady doing? You know, my dad was like, she's changing light bulbs around the ceiling fan. You know what I mean? You know, it's like, like very, very conservative, you know, family that, that shunned that. But I'm at a place in my faith where I, I just see in my heart, it's like they're, they're experiencing God in a way I've never experienced God. And, and I remember the process of beginning to work out of my comfort zone because I really wanted to experience God. And for those of you who, who experience God in worship, when we pray our church becomes a place where God, people experience God in worship, you know, it happens. It's, it's funny, kind of hand-raising 101, like, like how it works, because everybody takes the same route. Like, it, like it begins with, with like, like, like this, you know, like you're singing. You go from here to like this, like, you know, like they old like, slip me some skin, you know, like, you know, that sounds weird, slip me some skin. But we used to say that back in the eight. Like, my worship experience, like, started here. You know, we just went from here to, like, you know, God... You know, just fill my little hand here, God, with a little bit of your spirit. And then you move to the place where you play hot hands with God, you know, and you're like, you know, I got you, I got you, you know, and you get, you get to this point. So like you're playing hot hands with God. And you get to the point where like you're carrying a box, you know, and you're like, God, I, I'm carrying this box up the steps. Then you ask a question, you know, the next thing you know, you're on the ceiling fan. You're like, I'm one of them. Don't let your kids use the bathroom with me. But, but like there's, you're, those people who are clapping are somewhere in the middle of that process. The rest of you are like, that guy's crazy. We're never coming back to this church. Keep your kids away. But, but there, was, there was comfort that I had to sacrifice. It was awkward for me. I'm glad I sit on the front row because I don't have to worry about who's looking at me. I just, know you, I just guess you're all looking at me. But it's like I wanted to experience something with God 
that I'd never experienced before, but I knew I would have to get outside of the, the box to do that. And both in 1995 with my friends and seven years later in 2002 as God taught me how to become a worshiper. In both cases, what I was hoping to experience actually happened. And here's the fact of sacrifice. We're all looking for proof that our sacrifice is worth the possible or the probable outcome of our actions of sacrifice, whether it's giving, whether it's serving, whether it's just getting out of bed and coming to church. You know the number one reason people at our church don't come to church when they don't have an activity. And we know because we call through people, they're tired. At a long night Saturday, I was tired and we slept in. Because that's the way you make the varsity, you sleep when you're tired. That's the way you get on National Honor Society. You, you sleep instead of doing homework. That's the way you got your promotion at your job. You just stayed home because you were tired. What I hear people say is, oh, I didn't come. It's just not really important to me to set the alarm clock and get up. Like, that'd be hard. Yeah, it'd be hard. But it's worth it. Sacrifice is worth it. And when we look at David's monument moment, when you go to Israel, there are very few monuments to David. You go to the place where David killed Goliath and there's nothing. Like, nothing. You drive up. And you're like, we're, like I, I have thought several times about moving to Israel and just, just popping a tent and selling T-shirts and rocks. Because, like, I mean, there's nothing. You could have a whole industry just selling hats and water bottles and keychains and rocks in the Valley of Elah. Like David has nothing except this spot that's forever remembered in history. Go, go to the picture if you would. Because 2 Samuel 24 happened right there. You know, you say, Christian, wait a minute, that, that, that's, that's the Dome of the Rock. That's a Muslim shrine. It is. But that's the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. It's right there. It's one of the most well-known places on planet Earth. Right underneath that gold dome is where the Holy of Holies stood in the old temple that Solomon built. It's where now the, the whole, one of the holiest sites of Islam is. And it's where David sacrificed and said, God met me right here. It's one of the most well-known places in Israel. And here's what's the crazy thing about it. When you add up the 1.6 billion Muslims in the world and the 2.1 billion Christians in the world and the 14.5 million Jews in the world, even though those three don't agree with what's going on right there, 55% of the people alive on planet Earth say, I'm not sure what's going on, but clearly God did something there. And I don't know what, but clearly God did something there. What if our church would become a place, not everyone in this community can go to our church, not everyone in this church, in this community will like our church, but what if everyone in our community, when they thought about our church, said, you know, I'm not sure what to think about it, but I know God's doing something there. Like, what if we would sacrifice, and what if we would take advantage of our second chance, and what if we would use our sorrow to drive us to Jesus in such a way that God would do something here? In 2009, I was in South Korea. Maybe it's coincidental, maybe it's not. It had been seven years since God had last really done a huge moment in my life, but I was ready for something else. And in 2009, seven years after 2002, which was seven years after 1995, which is kind of the pattern that God works in, I'm in Seoul, South Korea. And I saw a movement of God like I'd never seen before in my life. I was at an afternoon Bible study over the lunch hour in Seoul, South Korea, and there were 10,000 people at this afternoon Bible study on a Thursday afternoon who'd come on their lunch hour, 10,000 people for a 90-minute Bible study. 
And I watched as they studied the Bible and I watched as they worshiped and I watched as they prayed and I'm sitting kind of in the balcony and I'm looking down at all these South Koreans and I'm thinking, I've never seen a church that loves God like these people love God. And it was like I made a pledge with God that day, God, if you will let me experience something like this in my lifetime, I'll go anywhere. Like I'll move to Korea, I'll go to Africa. I will give anything in my life to experience something like this. And the next morning, sitting in the basement of that same church, I felt like God called me to move to Lee Summit, start this church. It's why I was so willing to sell my house. It's why I was so willing to sell my cars and buy used cars. It was why I was so willing to quit my job and leave my place of comfort and put my kids in a new school district and move across the state line because I was willing to give anything to experience what I had seen in Seoul, South Korea. And we started this church with the purpose and with the desperation of seeing a once-in-a-generation movement of God that no one could deny. And when you look at David, what if I told you David's moment of sorrow that led him to God and taking advantage of his second chance and being willing to sacrifice the good for the potential great? What if I told you his moment wasn't just to be studied by us? but dreamed about by us? What if I told you the story of David wasn't to learn and to read about and remember, but the story of David was to be repeated? That somewhere God intended a group of people to read this story and not say, hey, that's a great story, but that a group of people would say, wait a minute, you're saying if we take our sorrow and give it to Jesus, and if we take advantage of our second chance, and if we'd be willing to sacrifice, then we could see a once in a generation movement of God that we could be a part of. That's what I'm trying to say this morning. What if I told you that if we would all as individuals move towards Jesus, and be willing to sacrifice the comforts that we love for the experience of revival that we desire, that God would move in a way that people in our community would never forget and they could never deny. And they wouldn't have to join it and they wouldn't have to like it. But they would say like we say of the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite 3,000 years later, God did something there clearly. What if God would do something with us? As a church, we're moving into one of the greatest seasons in the history of our young church. But we need to make sure we're all moving in the same direction together. You need to make sure you're taking your sorrow, the moments of being overwhelmed and like David in Psalm 62.1, letting that lead you to the rock that's higher than you. You need to make sure not to waste this second chance. God is giving you like Jacob a second chance. You say, Christian, it's been 20 years, man. It had been 18 for Jacob. And when Jacob realized where he had left God and he picked him up again, Eventually, his name was changed to Israel, and the rest is history. And if we would be willing to sacrifice together our time, our comfort, our money, our prayer, if we'd be willing to come together, desperate to see a movement of God that no one could deny, a once-in-a-generation movement of God, why couldn't God do in us what was done in David? Because God, Jesus says, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what's changed is us. Because I think God's still looking to do things like this in this world that he's created. So as we close today, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to ask you to...